Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Reverend Tab Miller. God wants you to have it. We have made it. We have arrived to the end of Easter, and we're now celebrating something new. We're celebrating Pentecost. And I know I've said it from the stage ever since the beginning of Easter that we were driving to this moment. We are coming here to Pentecost. And Pentecost is not just this time where the church goes, well, what do we celebrate next? We had Easter. That was about Jesus. Well, Holy Spirit, let's give him a moment. Let's give him Pentecost. As a matter of fact, that's not the case at all. Easter drives us to Pentecost. As we'll see, in a, in a big way, the whole point of Easter is Pentecost. I don't know why we don't celebrate this a lot more. But this is a big deal. Pentecost is a big deal. Last Sunday was the last Sunday of Easter. And we looked at Mary's song in which she proclaims that in Jesus Christ, God is putting everything right. He's putting everything back in order for us. And I pointed out that, of course, like Mary singing over her child in her womb, God is, through Scripture, singing over us, singing praises of the potential He sees in all of us. Great potential He sees in you. Not because of who you are, but because of what He wants to do in you. He wants to do this great thing in you and in all of us together and throughout creation called salvation. Not just salvation from death we will see today. Salvation in a much fuller sense. Salvation in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where we get the basis of what Christ has come to do, is all about the restoration of all things. I make all things new, Jesus will say in the end. But when we ended last week, and we ended Easter, I didn't really get into how God is going to do it. What is salvation? Many of us might wish to say, well, salvation is the act of Christ going on the cross for me and dying for my sins so that I don't have to die. And that's certainly part of it. But that's really not answering the question, how are you restored? What are you meant to be? Yes, Jesus replaces our death so that we might live forever. But then how are we changed from that moment? Yeah, we don't have to die. That's part of the story. It's great. But that's not everything. Christian ministry does not end at the cross. It doesn't end at resurrection. It doesn't end at the ascension even. When Jesus leaves this earthly life, he tells his disciples, I have more for you. Wait here, and on that day I will send you a gift. I will send you my presence. I'm going to do something new in your heart that will change you forever. This is really the climax of the Christian ministry. This is the climax of, the, of Christ's event. And everybody around on that day who saw it happening said, what does this mean? That's our question today. Before we read the text for today about Pentecost, I want to share with you one of my favorite illustrations that I picked up in seminary. Dr. Daniel, I don't know how it was at Candler, but at Asbury, for some reason, my professors were enamored with aviation. 
They love to talk about aviation. They love to talk about illustrations from aviation. Everything tied into airplanes for some reason. I think we're all fascinated with flight. It's safe to say that everyone in this room has come to be in an age where there are flying contraptions, flying machines. And for some reason, we still, even though we were all born into a world where this happens, we're all enamored by it. You're driving down the interstate in Jacksonville or Atlanta, and you see a big tin can with wings hovering over your head, and you just have to stare, even though you know you're supposed to be driving. You know you all look, and you watch it as long as you can. You're pointing to your kids, look, look, there's a plane, and you're supposed to be driving. Even so, even though we're all kind of enamored with it, I never saw a group more enamored than seminary professors. Maybe pilots, but my professors. Perhaps because they spend their whole life trying to fit their minds into an ancient world where the fastest mode of travel is horseback. There is no electricity. There is no modern technology. And so they spend all their day trying to imagine themselves in this world And when they look up, they're kind of shocked by the fact that they're flying contraptions around them. I have forgotten most of these illustrations, but I'll never forget this one. And as far as I know, it's actually a true story. We all know that aviation technology advanced very rapidly. 1903, the end of 1903, we're in our first flight. And in the summer of 1969, we're landing on the moon. It's pretty fast technology, right? But there was one snag that just about whipped us. When we finally got airplanes high enough to fly high enough to go through clouds, we began to crash them over and over and over. Now, we knew what clouds were, and we knew that there should be nothing about a cloud that should disrupt an airplane, yet it happened time and time again. Pilots would enter into clouds, and they'd come out in a nosedive. And people on the ground, what they would observe is they would see the plane enter into the cloud and then moments later they would hear the plane roaring and roaring and roaring, then sputtering and stalling out and then eventually coming out of the cloud into a crash. One day a pilot was high enough that when he entered into the cloud, it happened to him. And when he came out of the cloud, he was able to restart the plane and land it safely. And so they asked him, what happened? He said, it's the strangest thing. There Here I am flying in the air, level, I can see everything, the the horizon line, everything's beautiful. I enter into the cloud, and as soon as I do, I haven't changed the throttle at all, and yet I'm falling. I feel my body falling down and down and down. I'm in a nosedive, and so I pull up on the throttle, and the plane starts to roar its engine as if it's climbing, as if it's going up, but I still feel like I'm falling. And then it does what planes do when it's going up and up and up. It stalled, and then it came out into a crash, but I felt like I was falling the whole time. It didn't take them long to figure out what was going on. You see, your body, my body, our bodies, are made with internal instruments that are meant for life on the ground. You have nerves in your feet and in your ankles that tell your body, by proprioception, where you are in relation to the ground. Okay, I'm here, and if it gets a little different and it goes down, your brain gets a message from your foot, hey, the ground has moved. This is where you are in relation to the ground. You have eyes that can look out and tell you if things are level. And then your final, perhaps the greatest instrument, is your inner ear has fluid in it with little hairs. And as the fluid moves around, as your body moves around, the hairs move and tell your body where you are. And this is why when you spin around and around and around, you get dizzy. 
because the fluid in your ear is moving around and you feel sick because you're discombobulated. Well, here's what happens when you're flying through the air. Your feet are taken from the ground. Yeah, they're on the floorboard of the plane, but the plane's moving around. Your feet can't tell you anything. Your inner ear is now in a realm that it's not really used to. You're not on flat earth. The plane is moving in all sorts of directions that it's not used to, and your inner ear is thrown off. And so when you fly into the clouds, the last instrument you have, the failsafe, your eyes, are cut off from sight. Now your body doesn't know what's going on, and your inner ear takes over, and your inner ear is a liar in the air. It lies to you. It's a deceiver. The Bible tells us that when we left the perfect realm of God and walked into the cloud of sin, our hearts were thrown off. Your instruments are lying and we are in a tailspin. We are here to celebrate the blessings of God. We are here to be a blessing over the world. And yet, when left to our own devices, we only think evil thoughts continually. Our hearts are broken and we need recalibration. The instrument is off. Your heart is a deceiver. It lies to you about what you need. We need recalibration. So let's read what happened on that day of Pentecost. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who were speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said to them, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what has been spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name the Lord will be saved. See, on the day that we call Pentecost, the disciples are together, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and many are confused about what's going on, and so Peter has to explain it to them. He's going to explain to them what this phenomenon is. 
Now, last week, as I've already said, we noted that salvation comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ, right? We would all agree to that. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to set the world right. But Peter says something very interesting in this passage about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter is going to rely on an Old Testament view of what ultimate salvation is that we're going to see appears again and again and again through the Old Testament text. This is the salvation the prophets promise. He's quoting Joel chapter 2. And he says this. He says, God has promised you on the final days, and he says that's now, that you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit when he comes, which he has. And because of this, all who call upon the name of the Lord are going to be saved. He makes this proclamation. The Spirit is the mark of salvation. The Spirit is the one who is going to set your hearts right. So which is it? Does the Spirit save? Or does Jesus save? Yes. The answer is yes. God saves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. Jesus is the linchpin. But Jesus' salvation, including Jesus' own view of what salvation is, does not fundamentally differ from the Old Testament view and imagination of what salvation is, summed up by Peter here by evoking the prophet. Salvation will come when the power of the Holy Spirit is upon God's people. Salvation will come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes. You see, the Old Testament located time and time again, the problem with humanity is our heart. And just before the quote in Joel, where Joel's talking about what's going to happen in these last days when the Spirit is poured out, he says the world's going to be turned upside down and God's people are going to finally bring about blessings to the world. Right before this, he's talking about our broken hearts. This has to happen. The Holy Spirit has to come to fix our broken heart. In Psalm 51, David laments, my heart is stained. I am covered in sin. I was born in iniquity. God, give me a renewed and right heart. That is my salvation. Not getting to live forever alone. Give me a new heart. Ezekiel and Jeremiah tell Israel that the problem with their inability to follow the law comes in the fact that their hearts are stone. You would be happy if you could live in the law, but you can't because your instrument is broken. And so they both promise that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be the solution to the renewal of our hearts and of our salvation. It's popular Christianity, not the Bible, that says salvation is all about not having to die. Jesus' death is all about dying so that we don't have to die. That's certainly part of it. But the Bible is clear from the very beginning that it's not dying, not having to die, that's not salvation. Not having to die without having any change is no different than damnation. Salvation is the removal of sin. Sin is the separation from God. If you live forever without being changed, with being in your sin, you would still live separated from your Heavenly Father forever and forever and forever. That's the definition of hell, isn't it? God wants to return us to our vocation. 
He wants to return us to our blessing so that we can be a blessing. He wants to recalibrate us so that we can live a life that he's meant for us to live. Remember that in the garden, God sets up a sword. When Adam's driven out in his sin, he won't let him return to eat of the tree of life because if he does, he'll live forever. God's not being mean. He doesn't want Adam to live in hell forever. He doesn't want him in sin taking on eternal life. There's so much more about our salvation than eternal life. It's about abundant life that begins right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Does Jesus save or is the Spirit bringing about the fullness of our salvation through restoration? The answer is yes. It's always been the promise and the purpose of Messiah to bring about this moment. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is going to happen time and time again in the lives of believers because this is what it's all about. This is the climax of Jesus' ministry. It does not end at the cross. It does not end at resurrection. It comes to fruition at Pentecost. And we're marching on to the new creation as new creatures living in the kingdom of God. The cross and the resurrection make it possible. It opens up the possibility. But this is the life that we walk into. This is the fullness of our salvation. And so when we walk into the Gospels, when we enter the Gospels... We're reminded from the very beginning of the promise to Israel. John the Baptist serves as the last Old Testament prophet type. He is in the New Testament, but he's in the garb and the role, and he's speaking as if he were an Old Testament prophet, because what he's doing is he's summing up the Old Testament for us. And John the Baptist is given the opportunity to introduce Christ's ministry. This was his job. To tell everybody what this is about. To begin it. To say, here he comes. And he doesn't say, here's gonna, here comes the one who's going to die for you so that you don't have to die. Indeed, he does say, behold, here's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But in all four Gospels, all four of them, he says this. The one who follows after me comes to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. This is why he came. The Old Testament believers knew what this meant. Messiah is coming. This Jesus brings about our salvation. And our salvation is nothing less than full restoration. What happens is at Jesus' death, he pours out his blood. His blood is poured out upon us. And our hearts are unholy temples where God will not dwell. God won't dwell in an unholy place. Our unholy hearts are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ And so God can smuggle in a Holy Spirit into our unholy hearts. And the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. He defeats our death on the cross and then walks us into life eternal and puts back the breath in our lungs, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens on the day of Pentecost. So let's talk about this day a little more. This day was known as Pentecost before this event. Pentecost was actually the celebration of harvest. It was uh, a day to give of your first fruits to God. This would be a time where you've been waiting all winter long, trusting that God is going to provide. And when the fruits came, you took the best and choices of fruits and you gave them back to God saying, thank you, God. We've waited all winter for your fruit. We've waited all winter for your fruit. Likewise, Jesus tells his disciples, wait until Jerusalem until I send the one who will come and bear fruit in you. God gives us the first outpouring of the fruits of the Spirit on this day. And it doesn't come in a moment of private prayer. It comes when they're all together. Whatever it is, when the Holy Spirit comes upon his church, it is supposed to be a very public display. Like wind and like fire. 
Scripture says. Whatever it is and whatever it will be for college plays, it should be noticeable. The Spirit should do in us a work that brings back the vocation of the people of God where the non-believers see a fresh wind, a fresh fire, seeing in us a recalibration of our heart, making possible the blessing of the people again in all the nations following the Great Commission. The Spirit should be a public display. Let's talk about this wind and fire for a moment. Remember that Jesus dies at Passover, right? And Pentecost is celebrated some 50 days after Passover. It just happens to approximately coincide with the amount of time that it takes Israel after the first Passover to get out of Egypt into the wilderness to Mount Sinai to receive the law. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? So Pentecost and the giving of the law come about the same time in the historical celebrations. Remember the scene at Mount Sinai? What's going on? There is a mountain wrapped in a great storm, a great wind and fire from heaven is violently shaking the mountain, but from the violence comes a clear word. The Ten Commandments given to Israel as a guiding law and principle that's going to lead their lives in this new journey. Now, they're unable to follow it. And the prophets say, the law was given at this moment to reveal to you your hearts are stone, but God is going to rectify this. The new covenant is coming in which the Spirit will be given to you. And Jeremiah 31, 33 says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Isn't it interesting to you that Passover and Sinai align so closely to the cross and the outpouring of the Spirit. Just as Exodus leads Israel from death to life, the cross leads us through the death of our Red Sea. The separation of our death leads us into the life of Christ. And we're given through fire and wind the thing we need to prepare us on the journey for life ahead direction ahead, we receive the personal power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The law revealed that our instrument was broken. The Spirit sets it back right. That's what it's all about. Sinai began as a disorienting storm. A violent wind and fire soon gives way to clarity of the written law. Pentecost begins with a disorienting noise, like wind and like fire. The visuals and the sounds are like wind and fire. But from that comes clarity. A group of uneducated Galileans are surrounded by a crowd of people from all different areas of the world, and yet they all hear it. You see, without the Spirit, the making of the mission of God is impossible. The Spirit brings about the ability for us to be a blessing to the world, to reach out to all nations. If Jesus is the Word of God, and the Spirit is the breath of God, it is the breath that carries out our words, isn't it? If I had no breath in my lungs, the words in my mind would not come out of my mouth. Jesus is not going to be carried out into the world without the Holy Spirit. There's a bit of warning here for you, though. Even the miracles of God done through the power of the Holy Spirit can be received in different ways. Some heard and were amazed. Others heard. And although they heard, they were confused. And they asked, what does this mean? When the the Spirit is revealed in places like this, 
And when the Spirit is revealed in your life, the question that we're faced with, all of us, is what does this mean? At the Tower of Babel, it was division of language that threw them into confusion. It was disorientation. Disorder throws them into disorientation. And here, they're confused and bewildered when God puts everything back right. They have clarity, and the clarity makes them confused. Well, how, what can this mean? They must be drunk. As the band comes back up, I want to say this. When things are being put back right by God in your life, it can still seem so very disorienting. When the Spirit comes upon us, it's like getting up in the middle of the night and turning on the light. First, you're kind of blind. That which is meant to bring clarity throws you off at first. And we can be shocked and we can react in one or two ways. God is moving and we can be a community that says, fill us up. And let us be noticeable to the world that the Spirit is amongst us or we can mock God. Whatever we make of this, the answer to the question, what does this all mean? The answer is everything. This means everything. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no restoration. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no recalibration. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit, given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, will make the Great Commission in us real so that we can live as the people of God, representatives of God, that the Holy Spirit can move through us and we can be free to let Him live in us. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit on that day and they will prophesy. God is singing a song over you. The Spirit is hovering over you, bringing chaos from the darkness like He did from the very beginning. Are you going to join His song? Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All this talk of the Holy Spirit can be scary. What does it all mean? It means your salvation. Jesus has come and made a way for you to be new. We can mock Him or we can stand in amazement and say, yes, Lord, fill me. At this moment, will you stand and be filled with the Holy Spirit as you worship Him? Join in worship and be free to worship Him. Come and pray. Pray where you are, but whatever. Be free. Be filled. Amen. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.